The Edifice Complex podcast is brought to you by DCM, the drawing specialists, Blue Rhythm Commissioning Software, and Sensor Suite, the future of intelligent buildings. Welcome to the Edifice Complex, the property design and development podcast. Let your hosts, Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean, keep you up with who is innovating and doing great work, perspective on the adjacent possible, and challenges to the status quo. Welcome to the Edifice Complex. I'm Robert Bean, your co-host and unofficial mediator. You're with my colleague, official agitator, friend, and Yoda. Most everything to do with buildings, Mr. Adam Muggleton. Say hello, sir. Yoda. Hello. Baby Yoda is my new mantle now. I love baby Yoda. <laughs> <Mandalorian>. Baby Yoda. <laughs> <laughs> Today's guests are the Bachelor of Engineering Building Services and a Diploma in Electrical Services from the Dublin Institute of Technology. Right off the bat, two back-to-back practices that fit together and from Dublin, like one of my favorite places in the whole wide world. Already we like him. And he worked his way up through a whole bunch of different engineering companies, including one of Adam's Owl Matters. And so welcome, Owen Hayes. You're a principal now at Edge Sustainability Consulting out of Vancouver, and you're doing what we like to call some PCS, which which is pretty cool shit in healthcare systems. Welcome. We're very fortunate to have you on board. For our student listeners, because that's who we really like to talk to, this is how the world works, right, Adam? So young, passionate, edgy Owen the engineer wants to change the world. So what does he do? He stalks the best people. Like he stalked me. He probably stalked you. He stalks the best people. <laughs> that's because Adam and I, we stalk the best people. we the best people. And he doesn't take no for an answer. That's why we love him. So yeah, when he wants to bend someone's ear and get the best out, he, he hunts them down, hunts her down. And of course, because he's Irish... If you're going to meet him anywhere, right, Adam, you meet him in a pub. Charming, obviously. The stereotype is true. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and so I actually didn't know that Adam and Owen know each other. By the way, Owen spelled with a really good Gaelic spelling, E-O-G-H-A-N. Yeah, that's right. Most people would never get that. Egon, Johan, I've been called all (laughs) times. It wasn't a surprise when Adam told me that the two of you guys knew each other. When I was stalking Owen to get him to class, you stalked me and I said, I stalked you, yeah, that's right. (laughs) We should get you on the show, so we did. There's lots of people that need to hear some stories, but the STEM students listening to our show really need to hear yours because it's pretty cool. So tell them. Thanks for the introduction. Thanks for having me on the show. It's great to be on here and chat to two legends in the industry and setting up such a great podcast to students that are coming into the industry and give them a good heads up as to what's going on. So as you mentioned, I went to Dublin Institute of Technology, studied electrical engineering for three years and then transferred into mechanical building services. So I understand that colleges and universities here, they don't do specific engineering as it relates to a certain discipline. It's kind of generic. Whereas back home in Ireland and the UK, after year two, we specialize in a discipline. So that's specific to a trade. In our university, it was mechanical engineering, mechanical building services are structural. I chose mechanical building services because buildings are super interested and want to make an impact there. That program was, was excellent. Actually, one of your former host on this show was Peter Simmons. He actually knows one of my lecturers, uh, Ken Beattie. He was a big advocate of some software that we were using as part of building services, which is IESVE, which is a software for energy simulation developed by a guy called Dr. Don McLean out of Glasgow. So he was my bar lecturer, Ken Beattie, studied at uh, DIT. I was a lecturer there as well. And he studied in the UK and met all these great folks in the UK, including Don McLean and Peter, and they're apparently buddies. He brought kind of energy modeling into the 
building services program at our course. And it was a, immediately a bit of conflict between the lecturers because you had certain lecturers that didn't want to hear anything about energy modeling. It was all Excel. It was all manual calculations. They did not particularly find energy modeling, you know, something that you think you should do because a very old school way of approaching building design. Like we had to, Cooling low calculations were like four spreadsheets long just to get the peak dry result in temperature in a room looking at the solar tables of the Simsy guide. So as part of our thesis, our final year project, we do an, an energy model and have our full mechanical design for a building. And in my case, it was an office. But you had to have everything that you had in the energy model backed up with these spreadsheets and these calculations because they just didn't trust it and wanted to make sure that what the software was giving you was accurate. So... I graduated in 2005 and worked back home for a year and a half, worked with some really good architects. I didn't know they were good architects at the time. They're actually world-renowned Grafton architects. So we did like a house 10 Clyde Lane with Devon Farrell there and just amazing architect to work with. And there was an elevator put in this house. The guy from ThyssenKrupp was on site and she was on site, uh, Yvonne was, and she's like, I want wood panels in the elevator. On site, and the guy from ThyssenKrupp goes, we don't do wood panels in elevators. You're not getting a wood panel in there. She's like, we're grabbing architects. Put a wood panel in the elevator. Just like walked off. This is like having none of it. Like just forget about it, you know? Their project won World Architect of the Year in 2008 for Bocconi University, I believe. So oh, wow. we were just doing a small little house, 10 Clyde Lane together, and just a great architect to work with. They do really good work. After a year and a half at home, I was like, oh, I want to go traveling. You know, you finished university after spending yeah. five years. And so my buddies that uh, I used to do J1s to Boston. So in, in Ireland, we have this J1 visa where you can go to the States while you're studying in university. So from yeah. June to September, the weather back home is not the best. So we're like, no point around here for, for, for the summer. So yeah, we spent like three summers in an island off the coast of Boston called uh, Nantucket. Uh, yeah, yeah. Some really good friends there and got family there as well, actually. So yeah, those buddies that I went traveling with were like, let's go to Vancouver because at the time... But hang on, people need to understand that Irish people have relatives absolutely everywhere, everywhere. because yeah. there's more Irish living outside right. of Ireland, isn't it, right? That's right, yeah. It's brilliant. Yeah, it's it's good. <laughs> <laughs> I have no relatives in Vancouver, though. It's just, uh, we, we, we tend to stay around the East Coast area. We, it was a long enough journey for us to come across the Atlantic that we're like, okay, we're just going to stop here. You know, until you have Newfoundland. You're like, all right, this is good enough. That's because the beer was up to your standard. You said, well, this good beer, good area. We don't need to go any further. No, no, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> we have everything we need here. West Coast were a bit lonely, Robert. We need to bring them out more over this side, you know? But those guys we went traveling with, like everyone, there was a mass exodus in 2007 from, 2006, 2007 from Ireland to Australia. And we're like, I'm not going to Australia because my whole road that I was living on at the time back home, like they literally went to Australia. I'm like, there's no point in going to Australia and hanging out with all the buddies that you grew up with. Let's go somewhere different. So came here in 2006. December and I uh, got the job with Cobalt, now Integral Group. That's where I met Adam and um, started my kind of Canadian engineering career, which has been roller coaster, I suppose, ever since, you know, from getting off the plane thinking, oh, Canada's on the metric system to getting into Cobalt <laughs> thinking, what the hell is this? Like, it's the worst place in the world to do engineering because it's not on the imperial system. It's not on the metric system. It's on both. I didn't know what a CFM was, but what's this BTU? our malarkey and because we're so close to the states so yeah that was a bit of a learning curve but great experience worked with some 
really top-notch engineers there and worked on some really great projects. And after four years with those guys, the leader of that company left and I went to join him working for a company called Phoenix doing retrofits of existing buildings, which was completely different working on new builds. Like when you were at a consultancy churning out drawings, mechanical drawings, and I was doing energy modeling there at the time as well, which is kind of unique because they had a separate energy modeling team, which was separate to design, which I never got. Like these were the simulation jockeys, I think Peter referred to. Yes, I called them. They had a simulation jockey team in there and a separate electric team, separate mechanical team. But all the projects that I worked on while I was at Cobalt, I always did my own modeling and did my own lead models in tandem with the design because I already knew IES. So I got, we convinced Cobalt to buy IES at the time. And we just started using that. It was really a benefit. So we're not just using energy modeling as a tick the box exercise or yeah, you pass lead or you pass ashray, who cares? You're actually doing your loads in it incorporating your mechanical systems in there and you just get to realize that there's a lot of things that we do mechanically that have they had the software if they were in front of that software and knew the software and the design that would make them a lot better designers vice versa with energy modelers so kind of what happens now is energy modelers come out of university or and be like oh, i'll go straight into energy modeling and adam will kind of attest to this like you'll see like junior engineers sitting in front of like iesve which is the most complicated building yeah. simulation software in the world and they have no business sitting in front of iesve <laughs> like no design experience like whatsoever like that yeah. software you can literally go in and draw your hvac system every coil, every fan, every controller, and you need to know your control sequence of operation. You need to know engineering. You need to know sizing. You need to know how fans operate. You need to know basically everything about the design of a building, really to utilize that software, which students that are coming out of university, you just can't have that. You need to have the design with the modeling. It always baffled me that modelers didn't understand design and then designers didn't understand modeling and really they should be kind of two and the same. So yeah, if a modeler yeah. came to a designer or a mechanical engineer saying, plastic replacing PV panels and the designer be like oh, okay nut job go away you don't know they <laughs> wouldn't listen to them you're just like oh yeah just yeah. go away there energy modeler run your yeah. simulation you know and that's still the kind of the case today you know you got certain softwares that are doe based and download them le- for free and just click the buttons and yeah you got an energy model you know one of the legends really in the world is a guy by the name of uh, dr mark bomberg and he was a building scientist and he taught at the university of saskatchewan and he was very, very strict about computers. And he would say, you do not touch the computer until you know the answer. The computer is just there to run the numbers for you. But if you're using the computer to give you the answers, you're dangerous. And that was his belief. And that's so, so true. And Adam, we've talked about this before, you know, we adopted that philosophy because when we would hire engineers out of different universities and all of their colleagues, just like you were saying, oh, and they would get my competitors, they were all teaching these kids how to run the software. And when they came into our office, they were in for a shock because they got a pencil and a piece of graph paper and a calculator if they didn't have one. And most of them had it, but that's what their tools were. And then the Ashray handbooks and then our own stuff. And for like six, seven months, whatever it was, they did hand calculations. Day after day, hour after hour, all they did was that freaking piece of paper and their hand calculator and a pencil crunching the numbers. And they became the best engineers. It's so important. Like the software is just a tool. And if you don't know how to use a tool, then it's not going to work out very well. Like I can go up to home hardware now and buy the best hammer in the world. That doesn't make me a carpenter, right? So <laughs> <laughs> that's, that. that's, that's the same with, uh, with software, right? 
it literally is just a tool. And if, if you're not trained in it, if you don't know what it's supposed to do, if you don't know what things look like, we have graphics that we do on mechanical systems before we start modeling to make yeah. sure that we understand fully the, the systems that are being proposed by mechanical and by the team. And also to kind of give a visual representation of what it is you're simulating as well. Because kind of similar even to design and not going out to site and seeing what a fan coil looks like or what an AHU looks like. It's the same with the simulation world, except you're one step removed. You don't even know what the design looks like on a drawing. You're yeah. just clicking buttons through a software, right? There's definitely a couple of gaps that need to be bridged as it relates to energy modeling and design. And both can no, help each other out. It's no different than the drone jockeys dropping missiles and the collateral damage. When you get somebody that's on the ground duking it out, those are two different soldiers. Yeah, it's the one's same playing thing. Call of Duty in a, in yeah. a seat gun, all right? Yeah. <laughs> Literally, yeah. that's what they're doing. And then the other one's on the ground fighting. And it's there's no impact or reality to what it is that they're doing. And that's the same kind of with the modeling world as well. It's like, oh, my model says, but if you do a model properly, and you understand the design, that software and that model becomes way more powerful than you initially anticipated. You can now use it for commissioning. You can now use it for M&B. You can now use it to troubleshoot and make the building better over time. And that's kind of what we're seeing with digital twins coming on the market now. Like the IES are doing are pretty serious about digital twins. And it's literally going to be, you're going to have this digital representation of the building continuously calibrated and been updated all the time such that you're able to identify errors are things that are not operating as per the design and things that you can tweak right like hey what's going to happen if i change this set point here like yeah, change the optimization yeah. yeah, it's massive. Like I've deleted heating coils from air handling units in offices because of modeling, because I'm like, hey, I've got heat recovery. I'm only heating that air up to 12. The heat recovery is at 70% efficient, minus nine outside or 15F. There's no heating coil required here because I'm only heating the air up to actually 7C. Delete the heating coil. Heat recovery is not going to, there's no moving parts in it. It was a refrigerant heat pipe. What do you need the heating coil for? Let's get rid of it. Why is I want to jump in here? So first things first, for me, you're like a living Venn diagram. Design engineer, <laughs> software jockey, meets, has child, it's you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, starting from university, yeah, you're right. Because yeah. 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 your career has had an interest in art, right? You sort of arrived just as sort of energy modeling was starting to become mainstream. Back in the days when we worked together at Cobalt, initially energy modeling at Cobalt, we were using it for lead compliance and compliance modeling. So it made a little bit of sense that they were this little gang in the corner, but I was in meetings with one of them, and they're like trying to tell these senior people, like, no, that don't work. And I'm thinking, you're a year out of university, just shut up. <laughs> <laughs> but then it sort of changed again, right? And the software, I that's the one that made the difference because that started to become a useful design tool. But then you can't be a software jockey at that point. You've got to be a designer first, in my opinion, who yeah. uses that as a tool. Otherwise, it's like buying a lathe and saying, build me a, a sofa, bitch, right? It's just not going to work, right? No. To your point there about the deleting the heating coil, right? So one of my pet bet noirs is, you know, why is there no innovation in our business? And one of the reasons is you do not get sued for following ASHRAE guides and SIPSI guides, right? Because if the shit hits the fan, you stand up in court and you go, page yep. four, table five says. Now, if you're in that same situation, say, oh, well, I did my virtual environment model and it told me I could delete that. And I go, the other lawyer who will have a barrister with a brain the size of a freaking Australia will go, and what page is that in the city guide then, Owen? And you'll be going, <laughs> da, 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 da. 
And that'll be a rep. <laughs> it would be a, yeah. a manual calc as well, right? So like yeah. the software will tell you one part, but like you don't trust the software. I never trust software. Yeah. It goes back to my university days where like, yeah. just because the software says something, and this is what IES offers you, is transparency. So I can go into that coil, find out what the on-coil temperature is, leaving coil temperature is, follow the airflows, and then you get the pen and the bit of paper out, you manually check it, and you're like, oh, yeah. okay. The 45 coming in, and I only have to hit 45, 15.8 coming in and coming back at 70, do that. Oh, I'm above 45. This coil will never run. If it was a heat wheel, I'd keep that heat coil in there. But when it's a refrigerant heat pipe with no moving parts, you're like, ah, you get rid of that. And then that coil is never going to turn on or never needs to turn on because it makes to a four-pipe fan coil system. And then by default, by omitting that, You've saved cost, you've saved yeah. operational cost, and you can build more efficient. That's it. It's just like, okay, don't need it. You know? It's bigger than that, right? So nine out of 10 engineers would put that coil in and walk away and know no one was going to come and sue them, right? But the engineer that engineers the job, and this is the point we're talking about here, is engineering the job, right? You've done that. You've backed it up with calculation. But think of the 25-year life cycle money you've saved. Materials, yeah, right. running cost, on and on, maintenance cost. It's a freaking huge number. Where I think the next evolution of doing the sort of engineering, what I call design engineering, right, you're doing, is selling that benefit. I can eliminate this with confidence because I know this works and this is why. I'm not just a software jockey who's done a two-day course and this is why. But also, you need to be able to say, and over a 25-year lifespan of this building, I've just saved you 500000 Yeah, that's true. But that's the part that we don't promote ourselves enough in that regard, right? To that point is like multiplying these numbers by that lifespan. And then what could go wrong? If you have that heating coil on in that unit, what's going to happen? You're going to add more cooling. It's going to use more heat, but no one's going to be impacted thermally on it. So you could just have that running forever and you won't even realize it's that it's running, right? And someone does an audit and you're like, oh yeah, you can delete this coil and There's a big message in here, and that is is that we've talked about this before on the shows. Again, I don't have the the exact numbers, I can't remember them because I'm getting old, but it's something like 60% of all the buildings in North America are under 25,000 square feet, which means there's no requirement for mechanical engineering. Most of these designs are done by people in the trade level or the wholesale or distribution level that don't have a secondary science and engineering. So these kinds of, like the coil example, that exists all over our country. We're talking about looking, talking about life cycles costs on one coil. Just imagine the economic and resource waste that are in our buildings all over this continent. It's absolutely insane. If we were running a company that way, we would be fired. The shareholders would grab us by the neck and they would say, you're gone. That was the point about getting sued, though. That's kind of what they're afraid of, right? Because they're designing for the worst case scenario. Like I went out to a union in Vegas and they had a whole building with three, I think they were like, 1500 ton chillers that never ran. It was just part of her, like these chillers are in there for the past five or six years. I think they had less than a hundred run errors in each one. The place was pristine, like lovely, well lit. It was like, yeah, these chillers never ran. <laughs> it was just like, just in case, you know? Oh, <laughs> What? This is a whole room full of chillers that like are just in case Vegas gets a little bit warmer one day and or another chiller plant shuts down. You're like, but that's the problem, right? The incentives are all misaligned. There's no incentive to do what you're doing, which is proper engineering and right sizing. There's no reward for that other than a possible lawsuit and a fucking uh, six months of your life. And you'll probably come out the other end okay, minus the fees to lawyer and the stress and the gray hair, right? Whereas if you just do the bullshit thumb stuff, you get the pat on the back and the next job. It sucks. It might shift though, Adam, I think, because of performance 
based targets. And I know we're a little bit slow yeah. to the game on that. Like Seattle has reporting on all their buildings and we can get energy data from, they've got some great resources there. You can download like live data because they mandated it as part of their codes years ago, which has been brilliant because you have all this great data on yeah. all these different building demographics. And we have been slow to the game on that. We still don't have it yet. And I've been banging my head on the table for this and speaking to the guys at the provincial and kind of city level. I was like, especially as it relates to, you know, the new codes with Teddy and Tui targets. Yeah. I'm like, no, we need data. Otherwise, what happened with the step code, in my opinion, is you've got these guys, mainly envelope consultants, that was actually one envelope consultant company that just said, okay, this is the way to do it. We want to do a better envelope. So Vancouver went from 90% glass buildings to now we're going to 15% glass buildings. And that doesn't make sense either. You know, like they're kind of, kind of in between. But without that data that Seattle has, and hopefully they're leveraging some of that data, we're going to get burned and we're going to go down a wrong path. We kind of tend to, as an industry, sway to extremes. So we had our lead. So everyone's on the lead bandwagon. And I'm like, oh, this is the best thing ever. When Especially when I started working with yourself, Adam, back in 2007. That was the big kind of train that everyone was on. And yeah, now it's all change. passive house. Yeah. yeah, it's all passive house now. So that's kind of the new trade, which is kind of ironic because the buildings we built back then were glass boxes and we grow yeah. tomatoes and glass boxes back home, Adam. You know? yeah. <laughs> 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 we don't put people in them. So. And now it's gone to, you know, basically we're designing prison buildings. Like there was one project I was working on. The architect sent me through the drawings and we grew it up in IES. And it was like, oh, is this right? And I checked it and I sent it off to one of the guys. I'm like, 12% glass. I just emailed the back. I was like, nice prison. So the balance is, I think, is in between. But uh, going back to the original thing about data, if you don't have that data, you make bad decisions or you get someone running all these simulations, parametric modeling, which is a pet peeve of yeah. mine where they run 10,000 simulations on one building and they're like, oh, look at all this great work we did. And we did it in like five minutes or whatever. I'm like, if you're running 10,000 simulations on a building, you have no idea what you're doing. Yeah. <laughs> no, one has the time. no one has the time to QC 10,000 simulations, you know? So yeah. the most important simulation is the first simulation. Then you kind of go from there and build on top of that first simulation because that tells you all the kind of data you need. But as I said about the measurement and verification data that Seattle have, like we need that for the step code buildings. And step code has been around for three or four years now. And I'm still trying to get data, even from some of the projects we've worked on. We're slowly getting there to see if these buildings are actually performing because the expectation is that we're going to hit these EUI targets uh, yeah. that we can measure. The GHGI targets we can measure and the Teddy target, we can't measure that because it's just heat delivered into the building unless it's submetered in some way, which most of these buildings are not. So without that data, we're kind of designing blind, really. And all that's going to happen is hopefully it'll work out. But if it doesn't work out, we're like, oh, that didn't work out. And it was because of these guys that, that it didn't work out. So we'll just use that as an excuse. We still don't have the data. So another company will come along. It's like, I have an idea. Let's make it about this. And then we're going to have another building code that's going to focus. But again, they don't have that crucial thing, which is the data. Triggered here. Oh, fuck it. <laughs> <laughs> but you have to give credit to BC Housing, and you know because they have basically almost replaced IRC, NRC, in Ottawa. The amount of research work that they've supported and the documentation. Going back to your point about going from you know whatever eighty to ninety percent glass down to twelve percent, we have been working with them to understand that integrated design should drive the glass area because yeah. you have to have a proper amount of lighting. You have to have the control over the thermal comfort from the mean radiant temperature, but there's yeah. also an element of outgassing, you know, from strawberry radiation hitting any way yes. uh, material. So it's related to air quality, it's related to thermal comfort, and it's related to light. And so the integrated design is something that we, all of us, need to work with 
these people that are writing these kinds of standards. So we don't get the prism, but we don't get the aquarium either, right? Somewhere the body will tell us when we get it right. So to give a shout out to my old partner, Goran Ostrich, he always used to say to me, Adam, 45 to 55% is the sweet spot on glazing. Yeah. It, it leaves you open to options on like lead gold and platinum certification, which at the time was a big deal. But it also means you can live in it and not feel like you want to kill yourself. <laughs> yeah. See, a circadian rhythm is really important, right? Especially, especially here, right? So Robert, to your point there, like we work with BC Housing as well. They're a good client. And I think you've got that more holistic mindset about healthy, smart, sustainable. That's are our three kind of mottos because you have to have a healthy building. Anyone can design an energy efficient building that is right. terrible for occupancy health. All you need to do is throttle back the outside air and you've got this terrible building or go to 10% glass. It's like, yeah, great hey. building, your buddy, but <laughs> <laughs> it's very efficient, but you just can't live in it. Yeah. <laughs> so so that's, you need that balance. And that's kind of where I don't want to see the industry going down that path. And I think it is a little bit where you're just looking at a Teddy target yeah. uh, or a Tui target and a G. HGI, but you're not factoring in indoor air quality, which by nature of design isn't now in the Teddy target. So with the Teddy target, you're not incentivized to save on lighting because you're getting credit for your Teddy target by having terrible inefficient lighting because that's helping your heating load. And yeah. same ventilation. So they think designers are doing, well, ventilation design is the same as ventilation operations. So they're actually designing to code minimums, like bare, bare code minimums for ventilation rates. So what's happening now is we've got these super airtight buildings with a really good envelope with minimum code ventilation rates. We don't want lighting savings. They don't want yeah, a lot of class and they don't want balconies. That's the other thing as well. So we've been in, in meetings on high-rise residential buildings and the envelope consultants there, he's like, delete the balconies off the building because of thermal origin. And the developer's like, are you mental? <laughs> like, yeah, <what's> <laughs> <laughs> delete the balconies off my building. It's like, I less money that we get for an outdoor space you know in a high-rise building you need that kind of connection or some sort of connection with outdoors like be it like your dog is annoying you or your wife is annoying you or you just need somewhere to go read a book or whatever it is but you need to have that connection you know yeah you know what i worked on a job in ottawa it was supposed to be a lead platinum my last jobs i did for cobalt when and it was supposed to be lead platinum residential, we be the first lead platinum residential, blah 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 blah. Then it got down to thermal bridging, right? So these were going to be, let's not make no mistake, these were going to be high end apartments, right? I bought one, I uh, sold it in here. And there was a discussion about thermal bridging. So you needed thermal bridging to make the model work and basically to stop people getting cold feet because also yeah, it gets makes, it makes, it makes sense right? yeah. and then the cost guy arrived and the developer arrived and that conversation just went downhill man and there was no thermal bridging so basically you were paying like god knows how many millions for the penthouse and you were sitting in that window and freezing your ass off if you want a good example of thermal bridging just google the aqua tower in chicago and they've got the standard architectural photographs and then right next to it the thermographic images it's embarrassing and the architects won so many awards before the thing was finished. And I was in Chicago three, four times during construction. And I'm looking at this thing and I'm looking at those fins because that's what they are. They're fins. Yeah. And I'm going, this is a freaking disaster. Every floor that that thing goes up the same way is just another story to tell about how bad that building's going to be, right? 41 million BTUs per hour that thing runs at. 
in the middle of winter, cranking out while well, at the flame temperature. We've talked about actually before, right? 3,400 degrees, 41 million BTUs, and all those people are freezing their ass off. In that situation, it, right? It, Nobody yeah, it, it is. In certain climates, like cold climates, it's a no-brainer. They should just yeah. be doing this, we know. In our climate, it's a bit, I would say, harder to justify. Average outside our temperature here is 50 degrees F or 10 degrees C. Yeah, yeah right? so Vancouver's right. temperate, yeah. right? Robert's in zero. Yeah. <laughs> average temperature 32 degrees F, right? So, so no, it, dude, we get down to minus 40. I, that's without the wind chill. I mean, that's minus 40 is our, I, mean, I think our design temperature here is like minus 32, but I toss the asteroid data out because I know my clients are going to have buildings that have minus 40 operations. <laughs> it's just a no-brainer for those type of climates that you should be yeah. doing it. Yeah, have to. Should, you know? right? You know, you say, oh, should, I should be a billionaire, I should be married to Beyonce, right? Should, should, should. <laughs> The Edifice Complex will continue in just a moment. Can you find the drawing and supporting documents you need in less than a minute? Now you can with Echo. It's simple. Just type what you're looking for and press enter. Echo knows your building. Speak with a drawing specialist today. Ask about our special offer of painless onboarding plus six months free with Echo. Visit podcast.thedsoffer.com. That's podcast.thedsoffer.com. And now, back to the show. I want to talk about data because I got into a Twitter war this week with someone from the Well Institute. So someone put up from the Smart Building Academy on LinkedIn, you know, what is the smart certification you should have for your career? And my answer was none. It all should be done on open source data and performance. Yeah. So, well, that triggered this, like, <laughs> I think I seen that tweet. I was like, Jesus, Adam. He <laughs> rebel, you. Shit the server. The whole thing was, you know, well, she's right. Well's intentions are good, right? It's like Leeds' intentions are good. And Well's a new lead, I guess. But are you called the building whisperer, by the way? Yeah. It's <laughs> <laughs> quiet, quiet about Adam. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like that, that red cup of tea that bursts through the door goes, ah. <laughs> my point was unless you open source all this performance data you cannot benchmark and you cannot no. set kpis this no. data needs to be massively open source and local jurisdictions could do this with a stroke of a pen yeah easily that's what we wanted them to do right it's like you can't renew your business license unless you give them your utility data i was kind of pushing or advocating for you have to have this mandatory report because if we don't have the data to your point we can't impact the future otherwise we're guessing right so right. Yeah, you're yeah. just another person with an opinion the famous quote i can't remember the guy that said that a canadian lad if we don't have the data then we're just guessing you know and that's kind of the same with energy model i think energy model is equivalent to data but it's not as good as data it's just like it taking it to that level where it's not it's bridging that design to a climate and to a particular set of controls but the ultimate data that we really strive for is measured data and then the integrity of that measured data has to be verified as well because as you know Adam like you'll have BTU meters that don't have turbines that are flowing properly and that can give you false data and as my answer in on site in real time please yeah exactly and like you have to verify that as well so because there's a lot of there's another generation of companies that are coming online now where they're piggybacking the data that you get from a DDC or BMS system, yeah. putting it into these fancy graphs and yeah. kind of doing like heat and degree dynamics. So like, oh, you could save this much energy. 
energy, but they don't even know what the system looks like, how it's designed, how it's operating. So they'll give you all these advice, but they could shut down something that's running that is supposed to run 24-7 or make these decisions. But so, and that's kind of where the tech is coming in over top of these BMS systems and kind of doing something similar to energy optimization, I suppose is what you call it. But a lot of them maybe wouldn't have the necessary details that you need in order to do that. Uh, you've just described perfectly accurately the energy NDS code model. I come yeah. in, I harvest data or trend data from your BMS. I send you a load of, what, what does Peter Simmons call it? Colors for directors' pictures, you know, loads yes, of graphs. Yeah. You do a good job. Those graphs are nice. <laughs> <laughs> you get down to the bottom, my mind, turn off the other chiller, give me the money. That's <laughs> Yeah. And they're not cheap. Like that, we had one quote for sixty grand, sixty-five grand a year. And okay, what are you actually doing here? It was a healthcare building as well. So, like, there's certain buildings you can kind of mess around with, and there's certain buildings you can't. And healthcare is definitely one where you need to know what you're doing when you're tweaking a healthcare building. Because I like you, and I know you. I'm a bit anti-energy modeling normally, right? Because eight out of 10 people, energy modelers I meet are software jockeys. They've done the course and you know, they don't know which way up the handling unit goes, but that don't matter, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. But the evolution and growth in your career, and I'm going to describe your career at the end for any young people who listen to this, because there's a, there's a great story there. But the evolution of your career is taking your skills, which are great design skills, and then applying that to an existing building. Let's take a hospital, for example, right? Yeah. And optimizing that. Because you know enough to know when you're getting smoke blown up your leg, right? And it's BS. <laughs> the data comes in, but you still need that experienced brain to yeah. sort the wheat from the chaff and then say, these are the things we can optimize, right? Because just by soft consulting, I take that data and analyzing it, changing some set points, rescheduling outside air, rescheduling plant. You can save a ton of money. And then yeah. locking down a set point so no one can change them. That's the key. Password, everything after that, right? Yeah, definitely. And that, that's what happens. Like they're putting the overrides in, like you'll go and fix something. This is why you need ongoing, I'd say, measurement verification. And yes. to your point, Adam, like we've done measurement verification at a healthcare facility. This is what Robert and I originally spoke about. And we've had great success because we actually implemented the plan. And not only do we implement the plan because that like this is what happens MNV is probably the most powerful lead credit it's the one credit that always gets dropped and most buildings don't implement it because the cost's not there but with a healthcare building when you've got an operating budget of utility budget of two million dollars a year that they're spending fan energy is 450 grand of that then it becomes oh now it's a financial conversation we should put in these meters but no one adds fee to go back and stay with the project with Edge the stuff that we're kind of buildings that we're working on now where they're kind of healthcare based we always tell our clients we're the first ones on site and we never leave and the reason we never leave is because energy is so expensive for those facilities it makes sense for us to do a monthly report on that energy and then recommend tweaks to your point Adam on certain things or if something goes astray you're hearing about it after one month not after a year where you're like how did we just spend an extra 400 grand this year on energy where did that energy go like if you don't have the metering then you don't know oh yeah was that the chiller was that the pumps was that the fans like well, i don't know because you yeah, don't yeah. Have data, you know? let's say edge have set the building up you've tuned it got the mv set up then you can trend line an alarm the points you know as an engineer matter and then when they go out of range that's an intervention point right yeah you come in yeah. and you prevent a massive utility bill six months down the line <laughs> 
Yeah, that's it. We've asked for those alarms. You know yourself, any DDC or BMS system you go into, Adam, what's the always thing you see down at the bottom left-hand side? It's always locked up. 10,000 alarms. I was like, this is all. There definitely needs to be, I suppose, different levels of alarm, to your point. You know, if we could get an independent alert that would trigger those set points that you mentioned. There's two things I always do on a job. I try and lock down set points with a password, and I put consequential alarms on by email. So anything I'm uptight about, I try and set an email alert up to somewhere. But yeah. I come back a year later, everything's muted, the emails are deleted. <laughs> it's like, That's it. You, you kind of need to, I call it energy babysitting. It's really what it is, right? I think it's definitely worth Well, I just take that long to do. Like if you're familiar with the building, an hour a month is not too bad. And you can kind of teach someone, okay, here's how you process the data. And you can have the data presented in such a way to yourself that you'll know if something's wrong or you know if something's off. And exterior lighting, for example, was really high one month. And, you know, one of the photo cells was broken and you're like okay well that's an easy fix or they shut off a heat recovery coil we found out about that pretty quick because it was a massive heat recovery coil serving the whole hospital that they actually shut off manually so the DDC guy actually took it off the DDC graphic because he didn't want <laughs> so someone actually went up and basically turned off the coil and just other things that you mentioned as well Adam like um, MNV I think is, is something that is very powerful and something that we've learned a lot from it kind of completes the circle of design and energy modeling as well, right? Because it's ongoing. You get feedback from what you did, how you designed it, how you modeled it, how you simulated it. You're using, as I mentioned before, the model to kind of diagnose issues with the building. But if you build a crap model that means nothing, that doesn't represent fan energy or pump energy and so forth, then you can't leverage that data that you've built in the model to go troubleshoot what's going on in the facility, you know? And it took us a year to really commission that building. And a lot of the commission was done through M&V, Adam, right? So, because... You design a building, you come in and commission it, you know, from experience yourself and they commission it on a certain day or a certain week, but then they haven't commissioned it for the seasons. Once the point even, right? It's the yeah. operates. Have you ever considered this? I would argue that you're in the data business and actually you're going to evolve into a commissioning business because commissioning is going to become a data-driven algorithm measurement and verification in real-time business. And yeah. there are going to be a few wizards that sit in front of screens who can actually understand what's coming in at them. And they're going to be doing these tweaks and writing these algorithms to tune and tune and tune. So it will get to a point where machine learning will say, I think this reheat's been shut off because this is out of whack, this is out of whack, this is whack. And it will send a work order out to go and investigate it without yeah. human intervention. That's where your business, I would argue, is going. It is now with AirSet. So we have a division called AirSet where we have continuous indoor air quality monitoring. And the things that we've seen from monitoring indoor air quality across the 10 or 12 buildings where we have the sensors is unbelievable. Like simple things that you wouldn't think of. Like ASHRAE has a mandatory dead band of five degrees F between heating and cooling, which is obviously for energy makes sense. You don't want to simulate heating and cooling. But what actually happens, and this happened in an architect's office that we were given a presentation in. So we're in this office and 40 architects around. It's a Friday afternoon. And the place is disgusting. It's horrible, like just this horrible smell of like, oh, it's like just like dead. So the ventilation systems weren't on. And I was like, geez, this was really bad. So there's a great little device called a NetAtmo. I bought it in the Apple store. I have it in my house here. And it's actually advertised as a weather station, but it actually has an indoor air quality CO2 monitor, temperature, humidity. And it has a little wee weather station outside. You put two AAA batteries into it and it hooks up to your iPhone or whatever, Android, and gives you outside air weather data and indoor temperature and uh, humidity and CO2 levels every seven minutes. So 
it's like 200 bucks to, to buy this device. So we're like, okay, let's lash one of these sensors in this architect's office and find out what's going on and discover that the PPMs were getting up to over 2,400 parts per million CO2. <laughs> <laughs> so, awesome. I don't know if you can see this. This is a CO2. Let me see if I can get the numbers on. I don't know if you can. Hold it in front of your face. Let's see. There. Okay, so... That's it's, what's in my office. And even that outside ambient is like between four and 600, right? So this is actually pretty good. 2,400. Yeah. So, <laughs> People are like sleeping, man. It's like... It's bad, right? And now we have the data, which going back to your point. So now we're like, okay, now we know what... Okay, it's not just me with my nose. <laughs> it's actually a real problem here, right? And so this, these guys had two rooftop units. What was actually... I went out the site, looked at the... Check the outside air dampers. I'm sorry. That explains everything. It's <laughs> not an office, man. That's They're a hot box. DD sustained high CO2 levels and zapped everybody's brains. I'm sorry. Yeah. It's just like, oh So for the God. listeners, the, the, um, the worksite BC limit is 1,000 parts per minute. So if you're getting complaints, that's probably why. So we went, I went up to the roof and we checked the outside air damper was open and operating. That wasn't the issue. So have you any idea, based on what I just said, what was the issue with this architect's office? Why do you think it like went? The outside air damper was working, really? Yeah, it was open. Fire damper shut. Any guesses? It's to do with the yeah, dead. It was no rare at all. The fan so, wasn't moving. What actually happened was, in the morning time, the heating is on. So it's less than 20, 21 degrees or 70 degrees out. So no problem with CO2. Everything's great. Up until around lunchtime. So what's after happening is all the occupants are in the building. There are 400 BGs per hour, yeah. Right? So yeah. now it's above 21 or 70, but it's not at 75 or 74 yet to kick in the cooling. <laughs> so they all go for lunch and come back and they think, oh, geez, okay, CO2 is getting a bit hot here. It must have been that carb lunch that I had, but it wasn't. (laughs) (laughs) They had that dead, in between that dead band, the fan on the rooftop unit was off because it's not hot enough to engage heating, or not hot enough to engage cooling, but not cold enough to engage heating. Yes, okay, so. So, and that was it. So all we did, we went and bought a Ecobee thermostat, like a good Canadian company ripped off the thermostat that was there and then there's a separate programming function in the Ecobee so you set the heating and the cooling set points and dead bands but then the fan does an override so we just set the fan to run between 7am and 6pm Monday to Friday regardless of temperature yeah, 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 and then yeah. CO2 anyway right yeah, yeah. time for a PSA here public service announcement okay so we're COVID time. So if people are listening to this in the future, this is COVID time, right? So a pandemic, everybody's locked down. People need to know that in North America, probably 85% of all buildings, the air quality systems are shut off because of a temperature control. The thermostat is not an indoor air quality device. It's a temperature device. And what happens is exactly what's going on here, Owen, is that the temperature either hits a set point and then shuts the fan down or it's in within a dead band and the fan is off. And so the air quality just takes a nosedive and people don't know why what's going on and so here we are in a pandemic and we're telling people to ventilate is good they have no clue no clue right no clue. Yeah. <laughs> yeah to your point there robert like i just looked at a spec there yesterday for a bank and exact same thing you know <sighs> We have the sensors in a bank right now. We just put them in two weeks ago. We looked at the mechanical drawings. I'm like, okay, this is going to happen because like, it's cold outside right now. So the CO levels, our CO2 levels are pretty good. But, you know, give it yeah. March, April, where we start hitting the balance point of that building and it starts hovering, we're expecting that to kind of take off. Yeah, and we yeah. probably have to do something similar there as well. But And it's not just CO2. It's like relative humidity is another big one as well. So Adam, you know that the Sibsy Guide A, environmental design conditions, and we're supposed to maintain between 40 and 70% RH 
and we draw that rectangle on the psychometric graph. So like the upper. <laughs> yeah. so one of the biggest things, uh, speaking of, of air quality, is relative humidity. And yeah. we just do not maintain humidity levels on the lower side in any of our most buildings in North America, apart from healthcare facilities. So, And yeah. that's a massive impact or factor on the spread of pathogens, as mentioned by good research. Dr. Stephanie Taylor, I don't know yeah, if you yes, heard of Dr. Yes, Stephanie Taylor. So she, she presented, I think it was last year, pre-pandemic, last September, September before actually, to the BC chapter of ASHRAE and uh, invited some of the healthcare folks along and a fascinating woman and fascinating story that you know she's a doctor md and also became an architect so she really knows the triple threat master's degree so this is an interesting subject because rh element is not without controversy and we know no, that and, not at all yeah and so you know when you look at the members of reba for example versus the members of ashtray there's a conflict there in terms of the messaging that's going out there you have people like stephanie taylor who's pushing really strong for it and one of the challenges that we have of course in cold climates is elevating that relative humidity can Honestly. Yeah, and bad building science issues, right? So, but what was interesting is that Professor uh, Lindsay Marr and I can't remember his name now, I'm going to apologize for this. They did a study with some students down, I think it was in Argentina, and they were actually using RH to provide an indicator of transmission rates of uh, COVID. Okay. Yeah, and so what they were able to make an argument, again, one paper, one area, that as RH has changed, the transmission rate changed. And so, of course, Stephanie Taylor has been promoting that paper, as she should. But I think, you know, we, these are things that we're learning about. And But again, talk about an integration between the health and the building sciences. RH is that one factor that brings those two together. Right. But that's what uh, Al Gore would call an inconvenient truth. There's been loads of them during this pandemic, right? Yeah. So this inconvenient truth. RH matters and we don't really design for it. Professional engineers sign off designs and buildings all day, every day that don't meet yeah. ventilation rates. You know, if you've got a VAV system or rooftop unit in America or Canada, there is an 80, 90% chance that thing does not provide the right ventilation at any time. To that point, Adam, the number one email we send out to our mechanical designers that we do energy modeling for is you don't meet code minimum ventilation rate. It's also to do with the standard as well. So there's a bit of confusion because LEED has their own version of ASHRAE 62.1 that they refer yeah. to. I think it's 20, 2007 or 2017. I can't remember. It. I think it's 2007. And the province, the city of Vancouver here, are still using ASHRAE 62, 2001 without a denim in. But we're using a 20-year-old. Uh, it's actually a good thing because you take an office, for example. So an office, I designed an office at 0.2 CFM a square foot. You mentioned Goran earlier. So that's where I got that from at Metro yeah. Tower 3 and the other building. Same with you, Adam. Like you yeah. look at the Sibsi Guide A because you, yeah. we look at our, in Sibsi Guide A, it says one person every 10 meters squared for an office at around 10 liters per second. And that works out to be bang on 0.2 yeah. CFM a square foot. Whereas the ASHRAE 2019 62, it's 0.085 CFM a square foot. So it's 40% less air in the 2019 version of ASHRAE 62 for an office. And if you have someone that's just designing to code minimum, to your point, Adam, and we've seen this, I was like, oh my God, what the hell is going on here? Where a whole office tower has been designed at one person every 20 meters squared or 200 square feet. And then you got WeWork that comes in there. So it's a core and shell office. We don't know what the- WeWork is slicing dice it, right? WeWork is slicing and dice it. And then all of a sudden, like you've got double amount of occupants with like, has to be on air. Like there's no way they're going to meet. And we actually did these simulations because the province where I'm looking at adopting the later versions of ASHRAE and I just how it happened 
happened to be working on an office model. I was like, all right, let's just run these three situations and just send them off from IES. And like the PPMs were up at like 1600 PPM. With these minimum codes. So it's, and this is code minimum. So the ironic part about that is your code minimum doesn't meet work safety C limits of a thousand parts per million or 600 parts per million above. Uh, Nobody uh, gets sued, right? If you got uh, sued or lost your license because you didn't meet ventilation, you know what you'd see? Dedicated outside air systems everywhere. And that would yeah. be great. But Even you know so what? the office buildings that we went into, these had DOASs, Adam. Like oh, really? I just and they just undersize it. And yeah. that's one of the bad things about DOASs. I think DOAS is a good system, but if you undersize a DOAS, you're in a lot of trouble. If you have a VAV with reheat, okay, we're going to tweak the damper a bit. At least we can maintain the ventilation rates. And there's a bit of a get out of jail free card. But when you design that system or undersize that DOAS system, two things happen. A, you can get sued. Your yeah. building is not going to be very healthy. And three, you're minimizing the amount of free cooling you can potentially get as well. Because if yeah. you have like VAVs on that DOAS, you can increase those ventilation rates or have demand control ventilation. So the system has the ability to accommodate a WeWork if they come in on that floor, but it doesn't necessarily have the energy impact of over ventilating the building. That's kind of where the controls really needs to come in. And that's where design doesn't meet operation because you've got designers who think that, okay, I have to design the minimum ventilation for my building because of step code or because of lead or whatever it is. But in reality, they're opening themselves up to a building that's unhealthy getting sued because they think that design is the same as operation and it's not. It's not. Why do you have those controls in there, you know? Yeah. So those are all landmines. And you know what? Welcome to every freaking high school, every public school on the continent, right? Right. So, okay. So the engineer takes a density design, looks at how many yep. students square foot, and then what's happened over the years is they've increased the density of the students, their student-teacher ratio, and all of those ventilation systems are underperforming in our educational system. You can take your ashtray book. You can take your 62. I designed this to code. You can't sue yeah. me. <laughs> I just did what Ashray said. This is yeah, the. Uh, this is one of my other bet noirs. Persistence of performance. It's the most underrated design criteria ever in a building. Yeah. That system needs to perform persistently. So free cooling, I think, is the same as precision bombing. It's a myth. I've never met a free cooling system where all the dampers operate properly in the right sequence and been stroked properly. It just doesn't happen. By miracle, it was set up properly. Two or three years later, that's not been maintained. On paper, it's great. And you do not get sued for that. But from a persistence of performance level, like a VAV system with free cooling, economizer and all that, the chance of all that working, even from day one, are very low. Yeah. Hey, we need to say oh, another PSA announcement here. Um, <laughs> there was a school in Ontario, and you know, this is stuff that we need as an industry to, to step up. So again, COVID times, there was a carbon monoxide evacuation in a high school in Ontario here uh, this last week. I'm still waiting for the what happened to that, but carbon monoxide is a killer, right? So we know that. Why would a school CO system go off unless the building was in a depressurization mode? Either something was faulty in the control system, which is highly unlikely, or the building went into a depressurization mode. I'm going to bet my last dollar that the school board, due to pandemic, said, okay, we need to ventilate our building, so we're going to run our exhaust systems. And somebody forgot to tell them about the importance of makeup air. My bottom dollar, I bet, is going to go that way. You know, these opportunities as professionals, we have to say, listen, you guys, it's good to ventilate your schools, good to ventilate your buildings, but for God's sakes, this can kill if you don't do it right. So that's my PSA, sorry. You're right, yeah. I'm fucking so triggered here. How many designers, so I work with US Corps of Engineers a lot. Now, they're very prescriptive, but boy, they do, for every building they design, they do a building airflow balance diagram. 
and they calculate the precisation and they make that a design consideration. I love that. Because yeah. you know, a lot of buildings are in the Middle East and if you're sucking in air, that's a bit of a problem, right? Yeah. So, like, how many cool. restaurants do you go into, Adam, and there's no makeup air? Oh, like, God. You're oh, trying yeah. to pull the door, you're like, what? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, like, oh, we don't need that. <laughs> a schematic and an airflow balance diagram. I love that. If I see that, I know good things have probably been thought about. Those are yeah. sort of red flags for me when I get a set of design drawings and they're not there. And it depends that's- what stage they're at as well, but it should be at the, I don't know if you remember the brain back in the cobalt days. Do you remember that? Who's that? So it was this process oh, that we had. The premise was that we, before we start doing any CAD whatsoever, we would have our load counts done, the schematic done, and the control sequence yeah. of operation. I think it lasted for maybe six months. <laughs> I'll tell you why that didn't work, because I think it was Goran said to me, I had a real sort of philosophical debate going with Goran, who should do the sequence and the points list? And Goran was, if you know, that's a control guy's job. And my view was, well, you and I come from the UK and Ireland, right? No, that's the designer's job. And there was this existential schism in the business of like (laughs) where that should be. And it resulted in that thing going nowhere, right? To do a control sequence right the way we would have learned in in university is it's hard, right? Like it doesn't matter what building it is. You're talking, clear your calendar, turn off your iTunes, sit down with your schematic. Put it over your head. (laughs) Yeah, literally, yeah. It's kind of like the equivalent of modern day coding. That's literally kind of what it is because you're you're going through each event. So it's hard and that's kind of why you don't see it. It's because the main bit of engineering that we do as building services engineers is that schematic our loads and the control sequence. The rest of the work that is executed by engineers on a day-to-day basis as it relates to the building services industry is really technician work, like size and pipe, doing coordination, you know, coordinating services coming into the building, um, shaft risers and so forth. That is like really the technician part of the work that we do. The engineering is really the loads, the schematic and the control sequence. And to your point, Adam, yeah, you see like they'll pawn it off to the controls contractor and what they're going to do is like, oh, I'll just take it from this job and that's okay (laughs) if you've got that's okay if you've got six Teslas, because I know everyone kind of compares our industry to the Teslas, right? Here's what happens. You know, the designer goes, I'm running my job. Johnson's, you do it. So Johnson's get a generic sequence, the designers put out. They go, well, this guy's obviously designed it. He knows what he's doing. And he submits that back to the engineer. The engineer goes, well, obviously, Johnson's know what they're doing. Approve. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's definitely something that is still, it's something that has been consistent, a consistent complaint, even over the 15 years or 16 years of in in the industry. It's the same kind of things that don't change and and they're important, right? Like you can tell when you get a good schematic, to your point, Adam, across your desk, you know that, oh yeah, someone's thought about this, but if they haven't thought about it, you know that you're going to encounter problems later on. And usually the energy model does catch these problems, like we'll catch chillers undersized, coils undersized, sequence is not working, dead bands not implemented and so on and so forth. So we'll catch a, a good bit of that because we tend to work for the owner and then we get the mechanical drawings in and then give that feedback and we're there to help but if you don't have that even as a first check it's just going to get installed and built and you're in trouble then you know yeah. no, listen, we've been going for an hour and a half see so your charming Irish lilt has just dragged us in and we <laughs> we got some rapid fire questions at the end but I do want to make one point if you're a sort of an undergrad or a young graduate listening to this right studying your career one of the reasons we started this thing, right? If I want to be an MMA fighter, I model myself on Conor McGregor. So my question to everyone is, who's the Conor McGregor of building services engineers? I'd argue it's Peter Simpson, but he's retiring soon. Definitely be you, right? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Great. There's too many good people in the industry like yourself and Robert and uh, among others that are... 
<laughs> the point is You're this, right? your peak. The point is this, right? You started as a young graduate. You did your time. You learned your manual calculations, right? You then started, because you're young and you don't know things are meant to be difficult, you start adopting software as part of your toolkit. And now you've evolved that into a full integrated design process. And that will probably evolve for you into a commissioning an M&B thing. So you're going to wind up like this Swiss Army knife engineer, ultimately, who can take something yeah. from concept to delivery to operation to optimization, right? That is the holy circle. That's the goal, yeah, with yeah. the team. That's kind of what yeah. we're, we're doing right now, yeah. I would argue, get that Tesla Roadster on order, the next one. I would argue <laughs> 5 to 10% of working in building services engineers will be able to do that in the future. So I'm saying if you're listening to this, model yourself on owning it because that is <laughs> the path. That is the career path. When I started, my mentor said to me, Adam, this CADS thing, never going to catch on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He was great, Ronald. He was awesome, but you know, he just didn't see it coming. So you've really got to look around and see the arc, right? What did Wayne Gresty say? You've got to go where the puck is going to be, right? Yeah, the exactly. The integration of this, and you can't not have the basics. You've got to have the software skills, the macro look, the micro look, and the whole thing. And I reckon you're one of the people who embody that in where you're going, what you've done. So kudos. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate that. Like, It it gives you the confidence as well, like to your point about the basics. If you don't have the basics and someone challenges you, so if I'm in a meeting with you or or Robert or another senior mechanical engineer and presenting software results, if I can't back that up or if you can't back that up with manual calculations or logic or this is what's going on, you don't feel confidence in the software and your ability to make change. And yet in order to make change, you have to convince the people that are actually responsible for the design, the mechanical engineers, that you can trust this advice and the numbers to make those changes. But if you don't have those basics and you just say, oh, that plastic or paste and PV panels are do this, they're going to not trust you and then they're not going to implement those things that you want to implement. So it's really important to understand the basics of building science and controls and HVAC design before you kind of go into energy modeling. You're right. That's what's kind of what's missing in the industry right now. You've got to do your time. There's no shortcut around it. You've got to do your time. You've got to do the grunt work, right? Before you become yeah. the SAS super soldier, you know? You know, we talked before, there's four stages of learning. So you have unconscious incompetence, you have conscious incompetence, and you have conscious competence, <laughs> and then unconscious competence. You don't know what you don't know in the beginning, right? And then you learn some stuff, then you begin to realize what you don't know. And so you practice, and then you become somewhat competent and eventually you just do it because you've learned it and if you skip any one of those steps you're screwed you'll embarrass yourself you'll get it sued you have to go through the four steps so we're getting to the end of the time oh and you know we could talk to you forever i have a question for you let's just say you know like 10 years from now you get a letter from the dublin school of technology and they want you to come back and address their graduating class what do you tell the students you're going to have a hell of a career and you're going to make a hell of a difference keep the head down and do the grind work as you said to build your confidence as a person and develop your people skills more because one of the things with engineering I would say is that we tend to be known for lacking in, in people skills so not the Irish engineers usually because we're <laughs> not fine, but, <laughs> but like the people that we've worked with and that we work with right now I'd all go to the pub with them and have pints with them and, you know I think that's really a critical thing that is not taught in universities is having those people that you like yourselves that you can reach out to that are ex experts and you can have a good relationship with and are part of your clan and they're on the same page with to grow because you can't grow 
alone. You have to grow and grow with good people around you, such as yourselves. Yeah, that would be the best bit of advice. I could yeah, give. that's no, that's good advice. Yeah, no, yeah. thanks for that answer. I appreciate that. Thank you. And my last question is this: then. What's the one thing you would change about our business if you were omnipotent for one day? You woke up, you had your cloak on, you could change anything. What would you change? Mandatory data reporting and M and V for all business. <laughs> I'm in board with that. I could live under your rule if that's what you do. Because <laughs> if we don't have the data, we can't impact change. That would be the number one as it relates to our industry. Yeah, but yeah. you're spot on with that, man. Now, until we pull this data and really find out who's swimming and who's drowning, you don't. We're know. just guessing. We're just guessing, right? <laughs> we, don't, we don't know where to go. Yeah. <laughs> I've done this design. Well done, me. Well done, me. You know. <laughs> <laughs> to your point about the puck, well, I think the puck's here. Well, we need to know the puck is going to be there, right? And without that data, we don't know the puck is going to be there, and we don't have a lot of time to mess around with knowing where this puck is and not going to be. So it's important to have that data to know where the puck is going to be. Excellent, damn right. All right, mate. Well, look, thanks for coming on the show. Right. Yeah, Catch appreciate. You. it. Thank you, Robertson. Uh, great, great seeing you again, Owen. Take care, man. Yeah. Okay. Cheers. Thank you. The Edifice Complex will continue in just a moment. Adam, it's time to thank some people who are on our side. Blue Rhythm Commissioning Software. Blue Rhythm is the commissioning software I've been looking for. Most projects I consult on suffer from poor information and document management. Frankly, it's just chaos out there. Blue Rhythm removes this chaos. It is a secure, always available cloud solution designed to work on any computer, tablet or smartphone. Their Android and iOS apps allow seamless transition between online and offline work. But what I like most about Blue Rhythm is their painless and fast onboarding process. That team will bring all your existing forms and checklists into Blue Rhythm for you, or you can use or adapt their pre-built, pre-functional and functional performance test sheet templates. But it's more than that. It enables collaboration, automation, and easy planning and project management for all your projects. Blue Rhythm provides amazing support from a team that really understands your industry. To find out more, go to bluerhythm.com or call country code plus one, 612-460-8305. Also, you can hear from Blue Rhythm President Andy Martin on episode 26 of the Edifice Complex podcast. Robert, Robert, we there yet? I'm bored. <laughs> and I'm, well, it's hard to believe, but the future has finally arrived in Canada. How's that then? Well, smart remote building and equipment management is now available from Sensor Suite. Go on. Sensor Suite, yep. They're an innovator of smart building technology. We like them. They can monitor, control, and optimize anything in your building, saving you time and energy. You mean Sensor Suite are moving Canadian buildings into the 21st century? Yeah, I know. Another hard thing to believe, but they're doing it and they're saving owners money with efficiency gains. Okay, I'm in. How do I find out more? Got to go to sensorsuite.com or call 1-855-773-6767. And also check out the July 2020 episode of the Edifice Complex podcast and listen to Sensor Suite CEO, Glenn Spry. And now, back to the show. It was a surprise. I had been talking to Owen and of course you knew him. And then all of a sudden the triumphant came together and another inspiring talk. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that you knew him and I, obviously I worked with him, spoiler alert, I used to be his boss yeah. today, but, you know, he yeah. was always one of those people who stood out in cobalt engineering when we were there. He was one of the early embracers of software, but he was different because he was an engineer who knew the design fundamentals. So that made him stand out, right? And that's why he is yeah. where he is, his own business now. When I was younger, a lot younger, and I wasn't sure 
what my future would look like. You could look at him and say, yeah, that's what I want to be, right? I want that skill set. I want that design and modeling skill set. I want to be looking at building optimization. I want that whole arc. And if you want to know how to do it, you can message him and say, what steps did you take? You've only got to look at his LinkedIn profile and say, right, he did this, this, and this, and this, right? Do that and you'll have a great career. So what's cool about it? So he comes from Dublin. Here we are, 2021. The three of us are chatting and he starts talking about Peter Simmons. Yeah. No. So wherever you are, whatever engineering faculty that you're graduating out of, there's going to be these individuals that you need to pay attention to. Obviously, Peter Simmons was on his radar screen. And here we are. Like he said, he went, he graduated when in 2005. So here we are in 2021. And we're talking about an individual that he knows that we know. And I met Peter probably over 25, 30 years ago. Owen is a master at finding the people that he needs to tweak his career. He's been brilliant at it. It's hard to do these podcasts and keep up with the great notes. I got my head down. I'm right in that kind of stuff, right? <laughs> and part of it is, is that when you like, because you're a master at getting some really good information out, that dialogue that you have with our guests is great. And I'm always trying to write down the notes as fast as I can. One of the key things that I got out of there when we were talking about software, he understands the software, but his big message was just don't trust the software. Yes, thank you. I, I could have kissed him when he said that. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Got to yeah, do that check. Now and again, you got to put your pen up and your calculator and do a check and make sure you're not drinking Kool-Aid. Well, as soon as he said that, that's when Bomberg, because I was at his dinner table and we don't know how were we were. I think it was in Winnipeg at some conference. He was one of the speakers, but he was sitting at our table and he said, you don't ever sit down to use the computer until you know the answer. Yeah. And that has always stuck with me. It will always stick with me. And then this discussion about performance-based engineering, that's the box that we need to open up and crawl into and figure that out because we don't see that. It, it was encouraging for me to see some, because to me, he's young, right? Yeah. <laughs> and to see someone young like that, pick that up and run with it, because he'll get listened to, hopefully, by his clients and the people he interacts with, and he's obviously trying to influence a provincial building code. So, you know, if he's successful and people like him are successful, it makes a change. If you yeah. participate in your career and get into it and get good at it, you also have the opportunity to make a change to things like building code, to the environment, to the clients you work with, right? It's such an impactful job when it's done well. Yeah, absolutely. He also made another statement, which again, for our listeners that you really have to have some respect for and that he says, you could do 10,000 simulations in a building. And if you do that, you really don't know what you're doing. <laughs> I wonder how many people are thinking, I just did that. <laughs> If you have to do that much number crunching, you don't have the intuition that you need before you should sit down and do those simulations. And when I think back on the buildings that I've worked on, had the pleasure to work on, and they weren't fancy buildings like the stuff that you and Owen have worked on. Buildings I worked on were grunt buildings. They were the working man's building, you know, the factories and the manufacturing facilities. And then there was the custom homes. But even still, the modeling that we did, we would look at a set of blueprints and intuitively we knew which parts of the building were going to be a problem. And those were the parts that we did the models on. And we didn't model the whole building because we figured if we could get the bad parts understood, we understood the rest of it. And rarely did we run more than three or four simulations. The iterations were the rangeability, if you will. You know, the rangeability was very coarse as opposed to being very fine. And so when if you look at the design of right 
now a lot of people, it's like an on-off switch. You do the design and you turn it on and you walk away. But in the other end of the spectrum is you've got a dimmer switch with a million places on it. And some of these computer jockeys are doing rangeability designs of one to 10,000, the on switch, and then 10,000 places in between. I'm sorry, you need something like a four or five position switch. And if you can't get a handle on the fourth or fifth iteration, you don't know what you're doing. I agree with that. Totally. I'm actually optimistic about software. Whilst I'm anti-software jockey, the way the software I was using will hopefully develop is that yeah, everyone at the moment designs for the peak day, peak load. But really, most buildings operate in the mid-range for 75% right. of the time, right? Hopefully, as software gets more sophisticated, you can really model that middle and optimize it and it might make sense to have two chillers instead of one big one and you can operate one at peak efficiency in winter and mid load right there's all these games you can play and if you can do that in software once you've got that basic design done that's some real value and then justify so look if you buy two chillers big hospital xyz over 25 years because we'll be operating in this peak efficiency and getting this coefficient of performance it's actually going to save you operating costs the money and energy efficiency and my hope for the development of building design software yeah what i think and somehow we got to get to mark Paul's, I think is his name from Manitoba Hydro on the podcast. If he's still there, I don't know if he's there or not. But you know, when they designed that building, basically they did a bin analysis and said, okay, well, like you said, 70% of the time it's operating at less than peak capacity. So their main mechanical plant is heat pumps powered by the power that Manitoba Hydro generates, right? Large surface area heat exchangers, really low temperatures and heating, really high temperatures and cooling. Those heat pumps are just like cranking out exactly what the manufacturer They just step up and down as load goes up and down. Right. Exactly. And then they looked at, okay, well, so the 30% or 25% of the peak, you know, when you get into the design conditions, we'll just trim that out with gas-fired boilers or, you know, but those suckers rarely ever run. You can't do those designs unless you do the numbers and understand what the numbers mean. There's a yeah. huge lesson in that. One of the things that we didn't get a chance to talk about, but every time we have guests like this, and I just like, man, I got questions for you. I got questions for you. And one of them had to do with the user factor because there's an international energy agency annex studying the effect of users on systems. So here we are talking about energy models and mechanical systems and data, all kinds of stuff, but we still have to introduce the human factor into it. And maybe next time we'll get rolling on back again and we'll talk about the human factors because ultimately people, regardless of the energy models, society will run their buildings the way that they want to run them. And it's all about reducing stress due to bad indoor environments. I don't care what you call it, but every unit of energy that's converted from one form to another to condition people, it's because they're done being cold. They're done being too bright, loud, noisy, whatever. That's what it's all about. So we can sit and we can do modeling all we like, and we can do all the fancy designs all we like, but we really need to understand the human factor. The human factor is your thing. And the two things that I think are really most underrated, and if you put all these three together, you'd have a great design. Designing with exergy in mind, using low temperature, but also for persistence of performance. One of design questions you should ask yourself as you're developing is, whenever I'm talking in a presentation is, triple glazing gives you persistence of performance. You can predict the performance of that glazing over a period of time. It's pretty cool, right? right? Like and the that, opposite yeah. of that is a VAV system. <laughs> so many moving parts, God knows where that's going to work because yep. it might not be set up, designed, or maintained properly. This is why I'm a fan of Radiant with DOAS, right? Assuming it's size properly. DOAS gives you persistence of performance in terms of meeting your ventilation right. rates. It's got to be designed yep. properly, to be fair. 
heat recovery as well. But radiant heat and cooling gives you that local control over temperature. So that's one big fan of because there's persistence and performance, there's a predictability you can model and use, right? Yeah. So again, that's me. But what happens is R&D is outsourced to manufacturers in our business, right? So manufacturers go, they want to cram as much as they can into one package. So you wind up with a rooftop unit that's trying to do everything for everyone. Everything. And it winds up doing nothing for anybody. Good example of that is everybody, like I look at my office here and, and likely in your office area, you've got a printer, a scanner, and there's a good chance it has a fax element to it in it. Yeah. You know what? For me, it's a printer. Yeah, every once in a while I do some scanning, but you know what? It's a printer. I don't use the fax machine anymore out of it. Anyways, we, we were talking about all this kind of stuff and we've talked talked about Robert Pettersen before, and I don't even know if the guy's still alive. But one of the things, yeah, I got to think he has. His book is worth $1,000 on eBay. There you go. That book is a legend. He said in one of his classes that I took, and you would have heard the same thing, he said, if you're not prepared to verify the numbers in the field, why are you doing the math in your office? (laughs) You can't argue with that logic, right? We pay engineers and technicians to crunch numbers in engineering offices and offices at the wholesalers and at the mechanical contractors. And then they select all the equipment, then it gets all assembled. And nobody goes back and verifies that the stuff is happening due to your numbers. And in many ways, he was so far ahead of his time because when Owen was talking about data, the importance of data and the feedback loop, well, that's what Robert was talking about. Yeah, you know, he's talking about the whole loop. Yeah. He was talking about the whole loop. And, you know, that was 40 years ago, you know, 30, 40 yeah. years ago. Remember that book was first written whenever Robert started teaching. And it's incredibly valuable to have that feedback mechanism. And again, the, the software jockeys don't get that. You know, they don't get that at all. So it's guys like Owen, guys like you, guys like me, guys like Peter Simmons. Uh, when we go back out to the job, and this is the beauty of commissioning, and you're looking at that damper position and you're measuring airflow and pressures and temperatures and humidity. Okay, here's the numbers. Here's what's going on. You know, do these things match? It's simple, That's right? It. I pay you to do this. Does it do this? Yes or no? <laughs> it's very simple. Yeah. I mean, sometimes you can look at engineering and design and commissioning as a fairly complex process. And it is. But once you get comfortable with it all and you have some experience under your belt, it comes down to if-then statements. When you strip away all the BS, things are very simple. I they design are. you to do it. Does it do it? Yes or yeah. no. It's not, it's half doing it. It's yeah. yes or no, right? And I think one of the things, and I think you'll agree with me on this, is that when you develop that knowledge, going through those four stages, which we talked yeah. about with Owen, when you get to that fourth stage, it can actually be a double-edged sword because you can start yeah. doing things without thinking about it. That's one of the dangers. Yeah. So I always try to operate my entire career in level two and level three. So I'm always pushing myself to learn and be alert. Yeah. But it allows you, when you get to that level, which takes several decades, you're able to see the macro, which drives the direction, but you're also able to see the micro and the impact. Because the micro, it's like a control system, right? You got PI, you got PID, or on-off, right? A lot of people operate in the on-off world, but if you can understand the PPI, PID logic, that's the minutiae. It's the micro tweaking of the systems to make it work. But the ability to see the macro and see how everything operates and make those if-then statements is hugely valuable. And that comes from putting in your time. Yeah, no, he was a great guest, actually. I could chat with him for ages. I hope we have to get him back on. Yeah. He might evolve into the next Peter Simmons, right? There is potential for that to happen, I think. I hope so. And I hope he's rewarded for it and, and everybody that's with him because he is a leader. He's taken the steps to learn the stuff, learn the 
the people, learn from the people, stalk them as he has us. And we like people to stalk us. Yeah, damn right. You because know, <laughs> if we can find those individuals that are young, passionate, enthusiastic, looking for just that extra step to make things better for themselves, the family, and the careers of the society that they're part of. We love those people. Damn right. That's a good spot to wind up on, actually. Yeah. yeah. So kudos to uh, in- Kudos for what he's doing, and I would argue a great example of a career well managed with lots of space to run. Yet, absolutely. You've been listening to the Edifice Complex podcast with Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean. To access show notes for this episode, visit edificecomplexpodcast.com. Also, if you would like Robert or Adam to speak, teach, or consult on your project or business, please email admin at edificecomplexpodcast.com. See you next time.